The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. And a big welcome to anybody who's new here for the first time tonight. Feel free to stop up at the front of the room at the end, and it's always nice to meet people. If you have any questions, you can talk to Jean, our program host at the end. She'll show you around or explain things, how the center works, if you're here for the first time or just relatively new. And we're finishing tonight a series of three talks on the five aggregates, really important, interesting, and also one of the more subtle topics in the collection of the Buddhist teachings. It's really his way of talking about what this is, as I mentioned the first night that I talked about the five aggregates. He's talking about the different ways that the mind is sensitive to experience. And in a way, that's what this is. We're highlighting the fact that there's something, you know, conventionally we can say me, there's something that's sensitive. And the something that's sensitive is sensitive in a very particular ways, right? We have the five physical senses. We call this way of being sensitive, the body or material form. And then there are aspects of the mind that we're sensitive to. And the Buddha, like you know from if you've been here for the previous talks, he divides the mind up in a way that makes it easier for us to study the mind and develop some space, you could say, like understanding the mind, understanding the body without out of habit, personalizing these ways that we're sensitive. So he says, when you study the mind, I mean, it's pretty easy for us, it's still a challenge, but it's pretty easy for us to do this with the uh, body. Like to, it's not our habit, but you could right now notice that seeing is just seeing and not get confused by any perception you have about your sight, about what you're seeing with your eyes, right? And you know, we can go back and forth. I can have the perception, oh yeah, this is common ground, but I can practice not being confused by the perception and just be aware of the visual experience of seeing shape and color and form. Right? And we can go back and forth. And same with sound. You can hear sound just as sound being known or you can notice like what your mind, the perception, your thoughts about the sounds you're hearing. Oh yeah, that's I recognize that's Mark's voice, or that's the sound of English. Right? That's a thought. It's different than the actual direct experience of hearing. So seeing is just seeing, hearing is just hearing, touch is touch. Not the idea of what that touch is. Oh yeah, my hands and my my hands touching the back of my other hand. That's a thought, but the actual experience of pressure or warmth or whatever that contact feels like. That's sensation. So there's a difference between the direct experience of sensation and the thoughts about it. So it's relatively easy with material form, the five physical senses, to have a sense of that experience in and of itself, not confused by any, any additions or how the mind describes it to itself. So then we get into, can we know these aspects of the mind in and of themselves. Can we know the experience of feeling in and of itself? 
Can the feeling as in the pleasantness, unpleasantness, and neutrality, can we notice perception in and of itself? Mental formations, all the constructions, all the stuff that arises when we have a sense experience informed by the past, can we see that, know that in and of itself? And consciousness, can we experience consciousness, the fact that experience is being known in and of itself? Can we see it? So this is a very common method in the way the Buddha taught of deconstructing experience because when you know our attention is relatively superficial, we're just moving through life, a little overwhelmed, we tend to uh, very quickly interpret our experience. We tell ourselves a story about what's happening, what we're knowing, what we're experiencing, and then we're no longer in need of actually experiencing because we've got a story, we've labeled it. I'm at Common Ground, it's Sunday night. And then we're, in a way, we're trapped or even imprisoned in that concept, right? Because if I think something about myself or think something about you, and I'm no longer aware, sensitive, in these five ways, sensitive to the five physical senses, sensitive to what I'm feeling, to the way that perception is arising. Because perception is an unavoidable thing our mind does. It just labels what's happening. Like it, There's a lot being known. The mind, through these different ways, is sensitive to a lot, right? But very quickly, our mind puts a label on it. Oh yeah, this is what it's like when you're giving a talk on Sunday night. And so then we, we can be imprisoned by that thought. We're no longer interested in being sensitive, being intimate in the moment. Where you really notice this is when we're talking to somebody that you have a, you know, an ongoing relationship with. And you can find yourself, hopefully find yourself, going back and forth where you're sort of an automatic pilot interacting with the person because you've interacted interacted with them so many times before and you sort of know how to sort of do that like you don't even need to pay attention and you can have a conversation you have friends like that or people at work you know or even people at the checkout line where you know how to sort of act like a human being and be a social person but you're not really there and then you can flip where you're all of a sudden really there and it's alive and it's fresh and it's maybe even a little intense or uncomfortable, but it feels real. And then we're not really there anymore. We're sort of there enough to be socially appropriate, but the mind is involved in something else, or cell phones, or a thought about what we're going to do next, or whatever it might be. We're lost, gone. So this is the thing about getting to know the mind, is we can sort of liberate the mind from its bubbles. Uh, Joko Beck has a really powerful description of this. She calls it uh, putting a superstructure. Like he's in her one of her books, she's a, a well-known Western teacher. She died a few years back in the Zen tradition. She ran a Zen center outside of San Diego for many years, lived in, well into her 90s, and died maybe four years ago or something like that. She's got a couple good books. And in one of her books, she talks about how we're perfectly fine human beings, sensitive, 
in a way, a, a human being is sensitive. But then we go ahead and we build. She likens it to having a house with nice windows, light comes in. But then because we're neurotic, we build a house around the house, right? a, a superstructure. And then we're still living in the house, but now it's pretty dank and dark and not very suitable for living. And this is a little bit how we are as human beings where because of the habit of the mind getting confused by mental activity, the feeling, the perceptions, the mental formations, all the mental constructions, and this particularly points to the activity of volition, intention that arises in the mind, and consciousness. These things, the activity of the mind, it's very confusing. And what we do is the mind tends, because it's complicated and it's subtle, the mind tends to get dependent on a story and hold to that. This is happening to me. I'm having a really good day. Like even a simple story like that. And then it's like that story, dominant when it's dominating the mind, then everything is massaged to fit that perception, that idea, that story. Or I'm having a bad day. I love common ground. I'm not so sure about common ground. You know, the country's going in a good direction. The world's going to hell. So we have these different superstructures, ideas, stories that we hold to, that the mind clings to. And we get something from that clinging. We get a some degree of safety because even if it's sort of a negative story that we're clinging to, it's, it serves the psychology, the sense of self, it serves as some kind of ground, because at least I have an idea to stand on. Like, this is who I am, this is what's happening. So it, it provides a sense of security to a mind that is dependent on knowing, knowing something or being certain of something. And again, it can even be quite a negative story, like I'm bad, I can be certain of that. I may, it may not be a pleasant story, but at least I have a story to cling to that I know. So I want to save a little bit of time tonight to hear from people in the group, but I want to go through these four qualities of the mind because it, they are subtle and uh, the training is to learn to create enough stability in the awareness, in the mindful awareness, enough continuity, enough calm, so we can begin to notice the feeling tone, notice the activity of perceiving, perception, notice the mental formations, and even notice consciousness as something that is there in every moment, right? The moment is being known. To be aware of these things, and in deconstructing our experience like that, in a way, it breaks the spell. Our stories are less seductive when we realize, oh, this is just a feeling being known. Like I had an interaction earlier today, and there was some um, um, emotion to it. A common theme for me is like uh, when things are difficult, it's just a sense like I'm going to strike out on my own. This is probably not an uncommon pattern, maybe more for men than uh, people who identify as men, as male than others, of this like, 
the world's not going the way I want it to go, or the world's not going the way I think it should go, or people aren't treating me the way I want them to treat me. So I'll show them. I'm just going to become super independent, not need anybody, not be dependent on anybody, you know, and then the world can just be the world and all. So that's like a common pattern, had it forever, probably just the continuation of those who had it before me, you know, the males in my family, the culture passing along. I got that imprint. So it arises. And then it's just really interesting. So there it was. I noticed it. And I took some time and I started to realize, okay, feels like this. It's unpleasant. feels like this. This is the perception, right? And so it, it changes. Like when you notice that perception is just perception, it breaks the spell. And, and then you notice like that those mental formations, constructions is all the ways we try to, you know how it is, like if we have an idea of what's going on, there's some part of the mind is searching through all the files looking for supporting evidence <clears throat> for whatever view or idea that we have to kind of like uh, support it. Yeah, you're right. Look at this. Here, I found a file. Check this out. <laughs> Proves you're right. You're really right. But when you watch that activity, you see that level of dishonesty or the, you know, that it's just a fabrication. That you're only looking at evidence that supports the perception, the thing your mind is clinging to. And so the whole thing, like a house of cards, falls apart, which is really useful. It's not that we're ever going to get to some space where we don't have stories moving in the mind. There are always going to be stories. It's good to have stories. It's how we have culture, how we connect with other human beings. We can't actually meet another human being. The way we meet another human being really is through story. Even when we're, like, even with physical affection, what makes that significant is the story we have in the contact, right? Or you're looking in somebody's eyes. It isn't like some, you know, this is, we may have a story, like there's some energy exchange when we're looking at somebody. But it's the story, and it's the shared story. So we want stories, we just want to practice knowing that stories are just stories. So they have a lighter touch. A lot of the divisiveness we feel in the world, in our country, in our families, in our relationships, is because what? We're attached to the story. And that means we think our story is the right story, which means your story is the wrong story. And then we go about, like I said earlier, supporting that by looking through the files, paying attention in ways that support our our attachments, our fixed views about things. So the Buddha, as uh, some of you heard in the previous weeks, he was very explicit. He said that all of these things are very ephemeral. He likened physical contact, seeing is just seeing, hearing is just hearing. He likened these experiences to foam, like on a river, on a lake. You see that foam It looks substantial, like sensation, sound, sight, but it's really ephemeral. Like the sight we're having right now, the visual experience we're having now, 
we have the idea that it's pretty solid, but that's because it's being informed by the story. But the actual experience of seeing is in flux. It's changing. It's not a set thing. And sometimes when the mind is really stable, the awareness is really stable, concentration is good, you'll see how ephemeral seeing is. It's like a dance of light. But it's hard now for us when we're seeing to not get confused by the idea that there's a person there and a person there and a person there and a cushions, right? And these ideas, those are thoughts. They have a, a diluting effect. They make seeing seem more than what it is. Same with sound. Sounds a little bit easier to see how ephemeral it is. It's like before you even hear one of my words, it's gone. I mean, gone, nowhere. And then there's already another word, you know, another sound, another... So even before we can really hear a sound, it's like when, uh, I don't know if you've ever learned another language or somebody has a strong accent and you're really trying and maybe they're speaking fast and it's like you're trying to comprehend watching a show where they have a British accent, you know, and you're trying to get it, but the words are like, before you can comprehend one word, it's gone, and then there's already two more words there, and then they're gone. And So we can see with sound, even touch, even when we feel like, oh, no, 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 the pain in my knee, it's solid, it's permanent, it isn't changing. But the fact is that it is, right? The throbbing is a very alive thing. It's like a river of sensation. It isn't a solid thing as we think it is. The story of my pain, it's like this big edifice, this solid, permanent thing that hurts. But when we're aware of strong, intense, unpleasant sensation, but we're not confused, we're not reacting, we're just aware, sensitive, we see it moves, it's flowing, one thing after the next. And this is especially true with the mind. Now, feeling is another thing that when we're experienced, like I was earlier this afternoon, I had that unpleasant emotion, right? The perception, the constructions of my mind is, oh, I had forgotten how bad the world is in this way, right? I wanted to tell a story as if that yucky feeling I was feeling, it's always there, I just had forgotten about it. But that's not the case previously to whatever triggered it, it wasn't there at all, you know? And now, it's not there at all. But when it was there, the mental constructions and the perception wanted to make it seem as if it had always been there. Do you notice how that is when you're sad, when you're happy, when feeling this way or that way? This is the deluding effect of when everything is together it has a kind of substance, a kind of depth, kind of timeline that it doesn't actually have. It feels life, feels more substantial than it is. And then the, the, the really terrible thing, I guess you could say, is psychologically we get dependent on the lie. That's the really sad thing. We get so dependent on the lie that we're afraid of the truth. And then we need 
a center, a tradition, teachings, a practice, to basically correct that imbalance where we have gotten dependent on a lie. So we come together, we band together, we find, you know, every once in a while somebody comes along like the Buddha who can, who wakes up to what's going on and also has the skill to articulate what happened in his awakening process. And then we use his pointing out instructions for a long time, 2,600 years. We've been still, to some degree, relying on these pointing out instructions. Like the Buddha basically saying, you know what? It's not like you think it is. Pay attention in this balanced way and you will see for yourself. It's not like you think it is. And when you come into alignment with the way it is, how fluid things are, how fundamentally limited experience is so that it's not worthy of attachment. It doesn't mean the world's bad. It just means getting attached to things that come and go, things that can't be governed or controlled, is a setup for suffering. And how impersonal it all is. When we come into alignment with that, we realize a happiness we've been missing all life long. You call it the happiness of non-attachment or the happiness of letting go. But the thing is, it may not sound very enticing as opposed to like the happiness of getting the job you've always wanted or the love you've always wanted or the world you've always wanted. It may not seem that jazzy, the happiness of letting go. (laughs) But we need to keep an open mind. It's because we haven't clearly, deeply experienced that happiness. Because the people who have touched it, at least had glimpses of it, what they tell us is this is what the heart's always been looking for. This is what the mind, the heart, has been looking for. This resolves all of the existential problems. It doesn't mean that we don't die, the body doesn't die. It doesn't mean that there isn't loss, that's unpleasant, there isn't insecurity. It just means the heart realizes a way, an understanding that uh, allows there to be no friction, no burden with the way the world is. There's no. Pr- it's not that the world becomes suddenly a utopia. It just means the heart no longer has is constructing a problem with gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute, praise and blame. These are the what the Buddha called the eight worldly winds the eight vicissitudes of life, just naturally, unavoidably blow around in all of our lives. Sometimes it's pleasant, sometimes it's unpleasant. Sometimes people like me, sometimes they don't like me. Sometimes I'm successful at what I'm doing, sometimes I fail at what I'm doing. Right. So this is just common territory for human beings. So this happiness the Buddha points to, which is really a transformation of how we understand the body and mind, what we take it to be. If we're on the surface of things, then the mind becomes very dependent on our stories. We don't realize it necessarily, now fully at least, but being identified, being dependent, being attached to our stories is a very real prison. And the suffering we experience as a human being 
It's not because the world is bad or unjust, which it is in some ways. It is unjust. It is terrible in some ways in the sense that, you know, there's very real suffering in this world. But that's not the problem as as much as it is something for us to address. The problem is the not understanding what this is. So even as we do what we can do to take care of our lives, take care of those around us, make the world a better place, all the while this just turns out to be the best place to transform what the mind is taking this world to be. So we're doing two things. We're engaging this world, and as we're engaging this world, we're transforming, we're uprooting even better, how what the mind takes this world to be. On the one hand, what, where we are now, is we're taking this world to be the story I'm telling myself in this moment. But we can move beyond that story. And it really frees up our engagement. So let's look at each of these uh, four aspects of the mind a little bit more closely, and then I'll open it up for discussion and questions. So feeling. It's really interesting to see the different feelings that arise in our experience and to notice, like even today when you think about feeling, how many different feelings of pleasantness, unpleasantness, and neutrality. We, my wife and I went shopping today, and we got, I didn't know this until today, but Ben & Jerry's has a non-dairy ice cream now. And my favorite brand or uh, flavor, they have, uh, what is it now? Chunky Monkey, I think it's called. And maybe some of you know that it has some banana in it and big chunks of chocolate and vanilla ice cream, right? So it's like when I first saw that in the free, and it was on sale. <laughs> when I first saw that in the freezer there at the store, you know, it was like uh, just the visual experience because I'm trying to cut down on dairy just uh, not, not because I can't digest it, but just to sort of take care of the animals. And uh, so for me, always, you know, if I can do non-dairy, I, I will. And then flavor I like, on sale, I kind of care about these things. So I got it. And so the, there's that pleasantness. And it's just interesting to notice what that pleasantness is, you know, that pleasantness of anticipation in that case, right? And then the pleasantness of eating it. But if we, if my mind, I didn't completely, but in moments, you know, if we can track that, it makes a real impression how ephemeral that is, like how short-lived that experience is. And it doesn't make it bad, but it's, it starts to change. Like the next time in fr- I'm in front of a freezer and there's something interesting on sale that I'm attracted to, it means that that imprint of seeing that arc, like, well, yeah, there was some joy in the anticipation, and then there was some pleasantness in the eating, and then after a while, it wasn't even that pleasant, like the last several bites of it, you know, it's like a little too sweet, and uh, you needed some salty peanuts or something in it, 
to sort of round off the sweetness of it. <laughs> and uh, so to, to, ha- to whatever degree my mind tracked it, then it affects the next time there's a sense treat that I'm encountering. Because then the mind, like part of what informs the next perception and the next mental construction around that, whatever it is, that next sense experience, then it's just a little less entrancing. So this is a common thing. If you've been uh, someone following the teachings of the Buddha for a while, then you'll notice this around feeling tone and perception and mental constructions and consciousness, these four aspects of the mind, that they're just slowly less and less enchanting. Where good and bad things arise in your experience, you're stuck in traffic, you get a flat tire, someone rear-ends you, you lose your job. Don't we notice that maybe 10 years ago, we would have really lost it? And now, well, yeah, it's just this. It's a yucky feeling being known. I'm imagining the whole world falling apart, like, oh, if this could happen, and those are just thoughts being known, right? Because the mind somehow has had a lot of bad experiences and realizes they kind of have that arc, oh yeah, it's really bad, you think the world's going to end, and then things go back to normal after a while, normal enough. And so just means that, well, we'll do what we need to do, we'll deal with it, but why panic? Why get tight? Same thing with really good experiences. So the more we observe that every experience just has these five components, there's some you know, material form, we're seeing something, hearing something, touching something, smelling, tasting. Not always, but almost always, our experiences have some connection to a physical experience. But most of our world is made up of the mind, right? There's some perception. There's a feeling associated with perception. There's the mind constructing things around the perception and the feeling, and it's being known. And if we can break this down and see the ephemeral nature of this, and the Buddha really, especially this point of change, to really see how perceptions come and go, negative, beautiful perceptions, Like even in this room in the last hour, we've had so many different perceptions. Maybe for some of you, there were moments of the perception, I don't get this, or I get this. But where, like when you look at all those perceptions, where are they now? See, they're just things that come and go. Some perceptions are more seductive, so they drop a lot of mental formations and we whip it up in a way. We keep it going for a while, the drama, right? But even those times when you were really obsessed, caught up in some drama, they have gone too. How many dramas have we been caught up in in our lives? I mean, we couldn't count, right? And they've all ended just in time for a new one, (laughs) which is, you know, probably around the corner. And the key here is to observe the fluidity, the coming and going of these things. Because what it does is it takes the edge out. And this is this huge, profound transformation where 
you could say for an ordinary human being, we're really fixated on the activity of the mind, these four activities of the mind. We're spellbound by the activity of the mind. And someone who's on this wise path of waking up, we're less and less spellbound by what the mind does. That's just what the mind does. It creates drama. It creates divisiveness. It tells positive stories. It does everything. Never underestimate the power of the mind to spin a tale. Horror tales, amazingly beautiful visions of harmony and love and transformation. A lot of people who think they're on a spiritual path are just practicing telling themselves spiritual stories and being moved by the stories that they're telling themselves. It's not a bad way to spend a life, but it doesn't transform your life, right? Because the mind is dependent on the stories it's telling itself. This path is recognizing the storytelling mind by studying, by deconstructing the mind, uh, feelings being known, perceptions being known, Mental formations, mental constructions are being known. Consciousness is being known. There are these things happening. You can't really separate them. They're just different facets of the same thing we call the mind-body, right? But we can highlight them so that we can learn not to be confused by them. And then we start opening to a happiness of a mind not dependent on the activity of the mind. Activity in the mind can be what it is. We're not for it or against it. We're just not confused by it. And there's a lot of power. That independence, the mind not dependent, not confused by the activity of the mind, by the cognitive activity of the mind. It's really hard to describe how much space, how much peace, how much safety is there. Like uh, Sylvia Borstein says, we have to stop scaring ourselves. We tell our stories that scare ourselves. I'm not good enough. That's one of the stories. This isn't fair. It's another one of these stories we tell. Now, a lot of times when people hear teachings like this, they think, yeah, but the world's a mess. And it is. (laughs) But the thing is... uh, being confused by the stories we tell about the world actually doesn't help, help us do what needs to be done to make the world a better place. You know, when we can enter these sticky, difficult places in the world, not being confused by the stories I'm telling myself and not being confused by the stories you're telling yourself and telling others, that kind of stability and clarity is really useful. I mean, that's what cuts, cuts through all the bull. And that's what we need. People who, you know, we think what we need is a conviction to counter the conviction of the bad people, the people who have different views than us. Like, we need to be as committed as they are. We need to be willing to sort of fall on the sword as they are. You know, otherwise the world won't change. Even more powerful than people who are willing to be as crazy as their adversaries, right, is somebody who can be in the middle and not be confused by all the fixed views, all the attachments, right? That person, because the thing is, we are, 
we're affected by each other. So if we're around people who are really arrogantly attached to their views, you notice how easy it's even more easy for us to be attached or fixed with our views, right? But when we're around somebody who's in an open space, who has a ringing clarity, that non-attached ringing clarity, they're not fixed. They don't, they're not coming with expectations. They're just seeing things clearly. What it, what it does is people around them start to feel how attached they are to their views and how off that is. It really can break the cycle when somebody is able to hold that space of non-attachment, non-fixation, non-reactivity. This is how we change the world. And it's the hardest thing. I'm not pretending just in my own experience, knowing other people's experience. It's not an easy thing for us to do. But the alternative is just to continue feeding the craziness in the world, which is in every experience to think that I just need a better story to cling to, you know, to counter. So we're just in this war of, and it's a little bit, sometimes it's hopscotch, you know, where you're attached here and then it becomes untenable, the story you're attached to, and you leap onto another story and hold to that and, but it's always clinging to one thing or another. So now, as we're living our life and as we do our formal sitting time, (laughs) thoughts will arise, stories will arise, dramas will arise. We leave our training ground, breathing in, sensitive, intimate with the whole body, breathing out, intimate with the whole body, and we notice the drama. Because then now that's the predominant thing in our experience. And we observe, well, this is just... What is it? It's mind and body being known. Right? What else could it be? So you're worrying about your work tomorrow. You're worrying about some problem in the world. Well, what is it? It's mind, body being known. And then you deconstruct it. And you might as well start with feeling because it's one of the most seductive things. Honey, how does this feel? Oh, it feels like this now. So you tune in. And remember, this is just a feeling being known. It's unpleasantness being known or pleasantness being known. And then as you get some stability with the feeling, like what it feels like, you're not reacting, you're able to some degree to be intimate, it's just this feeling, then you'll start to notice the perceptions that are related to that feeling you're feeling. Right? That wasn't fair what that person said. That's the perception. And then the mental constructions, the evidence. But you, now you see it as mental activity being known, and it feels like this. Mental activity being known, and it feels like this. It's just this activity of mind being known. It's changing, it's impersonal. When the mind grabs a hold of it, takes it personally, everything hurts, there's suffering. When the mind sees it as the activity of nature, there's a lot of space, a lot of freedom. So we, there's this feedback that teaches the mind in a deep way Attachment always hurts. You can never be attached without suffering. And whenever attachment, clinging, grasping, struggling, whenever that is released, there is immediately a sense of freedom. The Buddha calls this the taste of freedom. It's unforgettable because it 
it's like an ancient reminder that it's possible to be a human being, a loving, wise, engaged human being without attachment, without being afraid. So I'll leave it here. We have 15 minutes. It'd be nice to hear from some of you. I think, Jean, do you have the microphone? Maybe Lynn has it. Yeah. So Lynn has the a mic. Uh, it's nice to say your name. We do record on Sunday nights, so just keep that in mind and with your sharings. Anybody have questions or your own experiences from your practice you'd like to share with the group? Yeah, please start us off over here. Hi, uh, my name is Snowden. Uh, I guess to I guess exhort and echo what you're talking about with the happiness that comes around from a lack of attachment. Um, I, I had a big experience this week about that and realizing I think the foam that we all have is like the fuel for my hatred, I guess, or the fuel for my anger in a way that um, it's really transformative to realize like the reason why you're passionately angry about something is because of constructions you have in your brain. And realize that those are kind of dependent, but then on the other hand, love, which I kind of group in with a lot of other emotions, isn't dependent on those foams and structures that like... Once what word are you using those blanking structures? I, I missed that word. Like uh, uh, foam or the... the oh, foam. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Those kind of like ephemeral things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and when you strip those away, the thing that's left is love. And it's a very indiscriminate emotion. And I mean that in a good way where hatred comes from you have to pick something. Like you don't have just a generic hatred, but you can have this warmth of whatever it is out there I can love. And um, I, I guess just I think almost happiness is a terrible word for using for this freedom because it's more of a equanimous love or warmth rather than a infatuation. And um, I, I just I don't really have a question, but I just I just noticed that the structures really build up a lot of the negative things. And when you break down the structures, what's left is kind of sappy, gooey warmth. And it's a very <laughs> happy way to go. Yeah, yeah, that's great teaching, Snowden. It sounds just in line with also how the Buddha taught. And your word, especially about love being indiscriminate, I think is a sign of a real insight to see that love isn't about a person, a, a situation. It's what's left when the attachment goes away, as Snowden said. Thanks so much for sharing that. Yeah, right in front. Hi, uh, my name's Mary Laurel, and um, I guess my question is about... Okay, so trying to not have the stories and so forth, but what if you're, what if you're confronted over and over again with, a, with particular individuals in your life that bring that up more than others and and when do you have to choose you know this is not what i can do anymore because i get too off i can't get centered i can't i can't get um uh i can't find that place where i need to those kinds of things yeah i guess that's where i you know you're working at it you're you're trying to do it and each time it, the trigger happens and you're trying to get better at it and it keeps happening i don't you know thanks mary laurel it's a good question and I'll just say first, even though it's a, it's a bit challenging or provocative, nobody makes us tell stories. But there are definitely conditions or situations that make the storytelling is here in this activity of the body and mind that increase the likelihood, you know, because it's so seductive to tell a story. So absolutely, that's why like the formal meditation, we retreat from 
provocative, triggering situations. We go to a tranquil place. I'm looking now for a place to do my retreat in May. I'm going to be on retreat for four weeks and looking for a cabin to rent up in, along the North Shore. And, uh, you know, like find that perfect place where I won't be bothered and it won't be too big or too small, you know, I can afford it, vast view, not enclosed in the woods, you know, and that it can be stressful, but it's important like where you sit in the morning or in the evening, it's nice not to have the radio on or to have your phone on or to be around even a needy dog. It's nice to really be retreated, secluded from anything that is likely to provoke a story, a drama. But that doesn't mean we're going to find that place. But if we could, it would be nice. So we do the best we can to prepare to practice in that relative simplicity of non-attachment, and then we take it on the road when the sit's over, and we enter our life where there, there are going to be triggers. So first we acknowledge that we're responsible for the stories we tell. And if you can, without causing yourself and others harm, of course, we would remove ourselves from those situations that trigger stories that are unhelpful, right? Why not? So if we can remove ourselves from a job scene that triggers a lot of attachment and we can have another way of earning our living, we should, or even a relationship. But then when we can't or it doesn't make sense given the, you know, just causes and conditions and the limitations of our life, then we do the best we can with that challenging teacher in our life, that boss, a world that is unjust. And we practice owning responsibility. Yeah, yes, there are triggers. There are these injustices. There is this obnoxious person. There is this situation. So asking ourselves, well, what story, what's a better way to tell this story? What's a different perception I can have about this? Oh, this person's doing the best they can. Or um, getting tight isn't helping, like really seeing that. Or like Snowden's point, is it, what, what does love look like in this situation, right? That love that isn't about anything, how does it show up? How does it inform this moment. Yeah, thanks, Mary Laurel. Yeah, please, Sean. I had a question about a uh, Deepak Chopra on a tape was sharing how you can go uh, try to connect with others from the outside in or from the inside out, and saying that awareness is a part of that. And so I, I shook hands with somebody on Saturday that I wanted them to hire me for this job. And so I was like mentioning all the good qualities for me of like what would connect with them rather than like just, you know, being present, you know, with that person. So could you share a bit more of how the idea of connecting with somebody from the inside out? Yeah. Well, I think the you know, the first thing that comes to my mind, Sean, is to be really honest with ourselves about our own need and want and not to be afraid of wanting something to happen, but be really honest about it. You know, like, oh, I want this to happen. I want this to happen. Because 
if we don't acknowledge it, if we don't feel it deeply, then it's going to color who we are in the interaction. It's going to shape it in a way. And that will have karmic consequences, like the other person will feel it, even if not on a conscious level, on an unconscious level, our wanting something to happen, our neediness for something to happen affects the exchange of energy. So the one thing that we can do to benefit ourselves and all beings is to be as clear and honest as we can be. Now, I think one of the things you might be pointing to is, you know, the way that dana works. We talk about dana in terms of how the center runs or this experience of freely giving and receiving. Like when we're, in terms of jobs and even relationships, if we can hold a sense, that universal love that Snowden was talking about, and then when we bring that sense of fearlessness and well-being and generosity and appreciation and tenderness and compassion, when we bring all those flavors to these situations like wanting to earn a job so I can take care of my family or do good work in the world or whatever it might be, but we're really holding it in this place of non-fear, right? what we're doing, the vision, the story we tell will come out of that. And that's an inspiring story. So if we can tell ourselves a story and tell other people be part of a story that um, is really built on the love and the appreciation and the tenderness and that sort of expansive feeling of generosity, that's a compelling story. And I think that's that's also true just generally in, in terms of activist work. You know, the importance of, uh, you know, it sounds superficial to say this, but positivity instead of negativity. And this is, you know, even compassion. Uh, we were in the Monday Night Buddhist Studies class. We're reading a book by a German monk, a, a really well-known monk and teacher, scholar in Buddhism, Venerable Analio. And... Uh, he was saying that, you know, in the way the Buddha taught compassion, even though for compassion to come alive in our hearts, we have to be willing to be intimate, sensitive to suffering, our suffering or somebody else's suffering. We have to really let it in. But that's not compassion. That's just the first step. The real movement of compassion is a wish. May you be free from suffering. That wish is beautiful. The person's suffering isn't beautiful, but letting it in, and then the heart that's not afraid, it transforms it into, may you be free from suffering. If there's something I can do to be part of you being free from suffering, I'm going to do it, because it's a beautiful movement. And even if there isn't anything I can do in this moment, or I don't have any clarity of what I can do in this moment, I still have this wish, may you be free from suffering. So there's that movement of generosity that circle of giving and receiving where that is a benefit for everybody concerned, holding that space, being in that space, not so much what we say or even what we do, but just being in that space is, uh, yeah, it makes things happen. Yeah, thanks, Sean. Time for one more person at least. Anybody want to go next? Questions or comments from your own practice that you have? Hi, uh, I am Kristen, and this is kind of 
to the you're getting to the point, um, particularly about um, activism and um, being involved in this type of mindfulness while being involved in such a a heated um, movement. Uh, and so my question is, and maybe it's <laughs> it's too big of one to end the night, but here we go. How do we remain um, resilient to dismantling the real truths of um, systems of oppression which exist in our society um, without attachment to that idea of resilience, um, but also without denying the truths of those unjust systems? Yeah, and it, I think it, you're right. It is right in line what we've been talking about in the last couple of sharings. And this is... I think the the important thing is investigating what is there when hate ceases, when attachment ceases in the mind, when fear ceases, when wanting something, that craving, when that ceases. Because superficially, having not examined it, we'll think weakness is what's left or passivity is what's left. But I think... What's important for activists and just any human being is we actually find out what's left when observing the mind, seeing the feelings, seeing the perceptions, seeing the mental formations, consciousness, and seeing, that, oh yeah, that's, that's an angry mind, or that's an arrogant mind, that's a self-righteous mind, that's a fear-based mind, that's a greedy mind. And seeing it clearly enough that the attachment ceases, the identification with the anger, with the self-righteousness ceases, and then to notice what's left or what arises in its place and what a human being can do with that mind. Right? So you can, I think it's okay to call it something, like to call it love or to call it compassion, to call it fearlessness. But the thing is, these words are problematic because people who are angry can say they're doing it out of love or compassion, right? Just like the people who are the oppressors can say they're doing it, they can call what they're doing, you know, they can put it in positive terms and do. We invade countries because we need to, because we care about our people or whatever. So the important thing is to actually find that mind, that heart, that isn't being governed by greed, by aversion, by fear, by delusion. And what you what we find is a mind that's not afraid and and profoundly sensitive, right? And in the moment, so that what we say, what we do, because we're not neurotically dependent on doing anything, what we do is always functional. And even if it arose, the action, the words we speak, even if it arose without sort of fully sensitive, being sensitive to everything that's going on, and it sort of misses the mark to some degree, because we continue to be sensitive, we immediately learn. So there's this feedback. When a mind is really aware, there's this powerful feedback. So I think uh, what you know would be very interesting in, in the different activist communities which is really has to be all of us, you know, even if your activism is raising your kids primarily with maybe a few things outside of that or doing your job that's doing good in the world, let's say. 
But we have to really learn how to live our life, do our job, be an activist without greed, anger, and delusion. And we can't do that without studying the mind and how those, how those minds that are governed by greed, anger, and delusion arise and how they can cease. There's a line that Martin Luther King tells uh, about the bringing together of power and love and how power without love you know, as we often see in our world, tends to be very exploitive and heartless. And love without power is feeble, right? And what we might call sentimental. And it's really about bringing the two together. And so the the power is really uh, sort of getting the self out of the way. That's what gives our action real power. And... When the self is out of the way, so is aversion and self-centered drama, right? Anything that would be in the way of love and compassion. So it's 8.30, we need to leave it here. Thanks for all the great comments, everyone. Just take a few seconds to let go of the words. Appreciate being here together tonight. And remember that it's our turn, that we're the fortunate, privileged folks that get to tune in to these wise, compassionate teachings from all the women, all the folks before us. They also had busy, complicated, often difficult lives, and they did the best they could, woke up to whatever degree, passed the teachings on one generation, after another, so now it's our turn in our complicated, imperfect lives. We hear these teachings, we do the best to wake up, to become part of the causes and conditions for compassion in the world, wisdom in the world, and freedom from suffering. So this may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.